0: I literally panned forward and I still can't believe this happened in broad daylight to two locals with shovels digging a hole on the road. The explosive device was big enough that it would have taken out three quarters of the convoy.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out oh, there. You Car, I
0: did feel a lot of regret. My friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to a quite to often. I leave under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to survive.
1: you to, up. Be resilient to get a War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. that should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country.
0: The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line.
1: Carly Box was in the Australian Army for 11 years. She was the first female to enlist into a combat corps in the Army and was an operator of unmanned aerial vehicles. She deployed to Afghanistan in 2009 as a Scan Eagle operator, spending over 1,000 hours on the platform, and again in 2013 as a shadow mission commander. Today, she co-owns and co-runs the Barracks Gym in Brisbane with her husband, Michael Cross. This is our conversation about her life in the military. Carly, welcome to Life on the Line.
0: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Tell me, Carly, where were you born? Where'd you grow up?
0: I'm actually Brisbane, born and bred. So the only time I've ever really been out of Brisbane is for army reasons. So deployments, one posting to Paka and some time in America. But other than that, I am, I'm a Brizzy girl.
1: And growing up, were you academically inclined, sporty? Like, what were your interests as a child?
0: Absolutely not academic. I was actually a musician, would you believe? So I liked school and I enjoyed going to school, but I wasn't I wasn't hardcore into the academics. I took up the flute when I was nine and actually was really good at it. And that became the focus of my schooling was, hey, I'm going to be a musician when I grow up. Obviously, we're here now talking on this podcast. So that's not quite how things went. I definitely was into sport, but more individual sports, so loved cross country, swimming, athletics, that side of things.
1: So when did the dream of Constant Flautus transition to a military career? Like, did you have military history in the family? Did you ever have an interest in military history? How'd that come about for you?
0: Nobody ever mentioned military bands or military musician as an, as an opportunity or a potential job for me. And because I was heading down the road of wanting to go to study at the conservatorium and then, you know, go further with that. I'm really surprised that not one person brought it up. And it wasn't until later on down the track that I was in the military and I sort of had a look around and was astounded that nobody had brought it up to me because it's, it's such an amazing opportunity. When I got to grade 12 and was doing all my auditions for different universities and whatnot, I was good, but I wasn't the best. And I was just in a pool of really great flautists and I just wasn't good enough. So I didn't get in anywhere. I then didn't really have a plan B and kind of just found something to do at uni, just did a Bachelor of Arts for a year and then went into another degree. Yeah, it wasn't until that I had finished that degree that I found the opportunity to go into Army Reserves and then followed that path, not as a musician, but as a truckie.
1: All right. So what, what then draws your interest to Army Reserves? And I don't imagine it was the truckie lifestyle.
0: <laughs> no. I don't have a family military history. I have some great uncles who fought in the world wars, but not overly attached to that history. No one else in my family has any interest in military or joining the military. It just, it had come completely out of left field for me. I was living down the Gold Coast, working in a job straight after uni, and I had gone to the internet cafe to check my hotmail. This is probably when ads started to pop up, you know, we're talking 2004, 2005 here.
1: You mean actual like pop-up ads as well back in the day?
0: Yeah, so not, Facebook didn't even exist, it wasn't like Facebook sponsored posts, this was like an actual ad that pops up and it was, you know, the army, the edge, the part time of your life and I was just in a job after uni, you know, just kicking around kind of wondering what I was doing with my life and enjoying life on the Gold Coast. And I just sort of clicked on it and was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool, I could do that. And then saw it was, you know, tax-free pay and like a part-time job. And I was like, this sounds awesome. It's like a hobby you get paid to do. And so I just clicked through and applied and didn't think much of it. And the next thing had a letter in the mail saying, hey, you're due to come to your Joe's session, which is the older you session on this date, see you there. And it was at a Navy cadet base at Tweed. Yeah, me and two other guys showed up to that. And then I just kind of followed the bouncing ball and ended up in as a reservist as a truckie because that was it was that and supply that was offered to me.
1: All right. Then talk me through your journey from joining as a truckie reservist to going full time
0: so i enlisted in brisbane at dfr in brisbane so from there i received a phone call from a bsm so a battery sergeant major at 131 sta battery so surveillance and target acquisition battery so when woe to such and such who's the bsm from 131 sta battery calls you and you're just sitting there dumbfounded thinking, I don't know what any of that means. I uh, don't know who this guy is, but I'll give him a call back and see what happens. I wasn't like a cadet or I wasn't like a diehard military fan, so I didn't do I knew what all the these the rank structure and stuff meant but I wasn't I hadn't memorized it all and I wasn't totally engrossed in it whereas a lot of people now they know the full rank structure before they go in and every piece of equipment and whatnot so when he called me and I thought I should know what this means but I don't so I'm just gonna have to try and play it cool and I've called him back and he said oh no worries yet we just need you to come and parade on Tuesday night over at this battery on this street just sign in at the front gate you'll be fine Um, This is back probably when the security on the front gate was a little bit more loose and you could just literally sign in as a visitor and go in. So I went in in civvy clothes, rocked up. The first thing we did was some PT. And then I think we were doing some training on some radios. And then later that afternoon, that evening, me and one of the other girls who had just started, they got us a uniform. And so I put the uniform on and I was just like, this is the coolest thing ever. I loved that I went there to do PT you know, meet all these people and use this equipment that I would never, ever use in my normal life. I paraded every single Tuesday and every weekend that was available. Even as a non-qual, I hadn't done my driver training yet. And they would just get me doing all sorts of different things. So I had a lot of exposure to all sorts of different things, which I think really sparked my interest for what this could be if I were to pursue it as a full-time career. I was going field out at Green Bank over weekend and, you know, playing enemy and doing all sorts of stuff, training on equipment. And I just was really, really enjoying it. I was just working an admin job, so it was worlds apart. None of my friends were doing anything like this. And when I was coming home and telling people about it, I was just so excited. I went to kapuka for my reserve course loved it like just thrived just absolutely loved every part of it and then i got back and straight away i was like i want to go full time like i don't even know why i joined as a reservist i want to go full time i then contacted my chain of command in my reserve unit and told them what i wanted to do and i said yeah i'm just happy to go in as a truckie and Then I guess the process kind of started from there. It's a long-winded process to transfer to full-time. I can't remember who it was. It might have been the chief clerk came back and said, I think you'll be really bored as a truckie just knowing your personality and knowing what the job's like. There's nothing wrong with the job. I just don't think that you'll be fulfilled. Have a look around. So I did, and I came back with a comms operator in Signals, but there was a two-year wait on that job. And then I went again, had another look, and I said, I'm going to go EW, so Electronic Warfare there was no worries, good to go, we'll get you into that. And so they did. And I was due to go off to do my IT, so initial employment training for that. And I was going to have to go back to Kapuka a second time to make up the deficiencies that I hadn't caught on the first round. And then... Yeah, I pretty much was there ready to sign on the dotted line and the RSM, so the Regimental Sergeant Major, came running down and said, um, hey, the Chief of Defence Forces literally just signed off on females being allowed in artillery. And by that stage, the unit had turned into a regiment, so it was 20 STA regiment back then and they were flying UAVs doing radar operations and meteorology and survey and it was all under the artillery banner and they had said that if you sign up now, you'll be the first female to go across and the rest is history. (laughs) So that's what I did.
1: So, yeah, you go back to school, as it were, to not learn again, but learn all the extra skill sets you need to do this full time. And then you're given this opportunity, first female, to enlist in a combat corps. Like, did the significance of that really, like, hit you or did you understand what that meant at the time?
0: No idea. Absolutely no idea. There were a couple of other girls in the unit in like clerk roles, Q store roles and whatnot. And so in my mind, I was thinking, oh, there's other females around. Like it really can't be that big of a deal. And I guess I knew that females couldn't apply for combat roles because i would previously just been through the process with DFR. And I knew that things like infantry and engineer and artillery were close off to females. And so when, yeah, they said, oh, you'll be the first, you know, it'll be a really big deal. It wasn't that I didn't care or didn't think it would be a big deal. I just didn't realize how big of a deal it would be. And my initial reaction was like, oh, I don't want to do that. You're crazy. Like, no, no way. And I was actually sent away and said, think about it overnight and come back. And then I thought about it and was like, oh, why not? Let's do it. Let's go.
1: And now what year is this?
0: The very end of 2007.
1: You sign up, you're going to artillery. Tell me about that training experience.
0: So as I said, I had to go back through Kapuka. I was fortunate enough to be up to week seven, so I didn't have to do all the, the starting bits again. And I loved Kapuka the first time. I loved it the second time. Um, I've still got really close friends from my time at Kapuka. Then we go to Pakapunyal to the School of Artillery. Again, I was not thinking too much about it It was just like oh yeah we're all going off to IETs whatever and there was four other boys and we're all going together yeah we've in our pollies on the bus heading down from Wagga to Pakapanyal it's about a four-hour drive dropping some people off along the way and then we get there and yes everyone's just staring staring at us getting off the bus which I thought oh cool you know new kids on the block that's that's pretty normal but then yeah as soon as I got off the bus there's all these mutterings and whisperings and now that I know what I know I know that it was a case of oh that's her that's that's the first chicken artillery. That's, you know, that's gunner box. So that was quite overwhelming because to me, I just thought, oh, I'm just a person. I'm just another soldier. I'm just here to do what you guys do. Don't mind me. Keep going with what you're doing. But they had obviously been given briefs and very strong talking to about how to handle themselves around me, how to talk around me. Don't swear. Don't talk inappropriately. Don't do this. Don't do that. And everyone ran over to help me with my trunk, but no one ran over to help the other boys. That was, you know, a strange experience because in my head, I was like, I'm just one of the boys. So anyway, we got all settled in. Yeah, got to our IET Course. It was a unique experience because the UAV trade actually had a lot of people transferring across from other trades. So there was corporals, sergeants, warrant officers on my course, which isn't really normal for an IET course. But in a way, it kind of helped me out because it really helped me learn the ropes of what it meant to be in a combat corps because some of them were infantry coming across and whatnot. A lot of academics in the course to start with so that was i had to really really work hard i had to study really hard and i had to really knuckle down to make sure that i was getting across the line the course itself just ran you know we just did our course and then got posted up to brisbane but it wasn't without hiccups with being treated that bit differently because you're a female in what is essentially a massive boys club. The School of Artillery in Bridges Barracks in Puckapunyal had never seen a female come through before. So every time I walked in the mess, 200 heads would turn. Every time I did PT, everyone's watching me, waiting for me to fail. And I was actually pretty fit, so it wasn't a problem. Um, yeah, like I definitely just felt like I was able to slot in. I wasn't worried about them swearing or talking inappropriately. I, I didn't get offended or get princessy by any of that. There was a time where I noticed that the boys on my course just weren't swearing and weren't saying anything and were being very diplomatic when I was around and I I dropped a swear word in are like you can't say that if we can't say that then you can't say that I'm like I knew you'd been given a talking to it's fine just be yourselves and then once I kind of like released the floodgates and everyone was just normal when we would go out you know in Seymour on the town you know I'd dress up nicely and still be feminine so I, I managed to find a balance between femininity and you know just Kind of also being a soldier, but I—I I guess you would say I was tomboyish, but not too—not too hardcore. I still struggled at things like I still struggled with pack marching, and I still struggled with carrying heavy loads, and I still struggled with things that. But I was always—I would always give it a go, but then always turn around and say, "Hey, I need some help with this."
1: Well, on that, when you found before you had that, you dispelled the tension, said, hey, I'm one of you, don't treat me differently. Before that, they're kind of watching for you to fail, et cetera. Did you find that actually once that was gone, you're like, hey, it just, let's all quality, let's all be the same. That when you did have moments that you struggled or failed, which anyone else on that course will have had in different ways as well, were they then suddenly more team playing towards you and, you know, Better treatment?
0: Yeah, definitely. You can either go one of two ways as a female in the military full stop, but particularly in a combat role or combat corps, You can either be the girl that sits there and says, oh, I I can't do that. That's too heavy for me, or I'm not strong enough, or I can't do that. Or, you know, you can just blow it off straight away and just expect you're going to get everyone pandering over you. Or you can give it a crack. You can do your best and then turn around and say, hey, guys, I've had a go. I, I need some help. And I found that that approach And that's just in my personality anyway i would never just kind of shy away from something but i found that that approach really helped me earn a lot more respect rather than just kind of blowing it off and being a bit princessy it was like hey i gave it a crack but i actually just need some help and it it would be like lifting a heavy trunk that would be a two-person lift anyway whether it was two males or a female and a male but yeah through that and and my fitness i definitely was able to gain a lot of respect from my my peers
1: so 2008, say around this time, you're back at Kapuka doing this training end of 07, early 08. You know, we've been deploying to the Middle East for years now. And although you joined out of this initial taste of military life in the reserves and loving the equipment, the lifestyle, all the cool stuff, is starting to occur to you, well, I'm in a combat corps that could actually mean I go overseas and like, was that an exciting prospect or how would you feel about just that wider context of what Australia was committing to at the time?
0: Yeah, so when I joined was a really high tempo period and my unit had actually had people across Timor. I think they were just kind of at the edge of the end of Timor there or their involvement in Timor. We had people in Iraq and we had people in Afghanistan, so super high tempo. So I knew it was inevitable that if I was doing well and I passed, obviously, and was good at my job, that I was probably going to get selected to go on a trip. The idea of that really, I don't want to say it excited me, but it just, to me, it just made sense. I thought that this is what we do. You know, you join the military and you expect to go on operations and you serve your country. And I knew that there was a very real possibility that that would happen. I was looking forward to it. It would be the opportunity to do your job in a real-life setting, a challenge. I'd never been overseas before either, so my first step overseas was actually in Kuwait and then to Afghanistan. To travel a bit was was exciting, but the thought of actually deploying on operations really excited me. I, I was really looking forward to it.
1: Well, it's not long until you actually make that trip.
0: Correct. So I got to the unit. After my IET course, I think it was about April 2008, spend some time in the unit, field trips, et cetera, normal army things, loving life, uh, living on base, and then ended up moving off base, just doing all the, the usual digger things. And then, yeah, I got selected to do a Scan Eagle course, which they were previously actually being run in the States, but I did one of the first that was run in Brisbane. So a bit unfortunate there, but, you know, still got to do it. Start of 2009, got picked up to be on the next UAV rotation into Afghanistan, which would go in in July 2009. So we spent that first six months doing our pre-deployment training.
1: And can you clarify what is the ScanEagle platform?
0: Yeah, so ScanEagle is a, it's an Amen area vehicle, which nowadays is more commonly known as a drone. It's launched off a catapult and then it lands on a, I've totally forgotten the name of it, but basically it's it's a line that catches it and then they wind that line down as opposed to a runway catch. It is, I would say, a smaller platform compared to what they use now, which is Shadow, but it's not one of the tiny micro platforms that we know we also see kicking around. And yeah, we're used a lot for surveillance, counter IDF, patrol overwatch, um, all sorts of things actually.
1: So after you finish your training on that platform how do you feel then about the trip that's upcoming do you feel prepared and when how much notice do you get that you are actually finally going overseas
0: I feel prepared as a person I feel very confident and very you know I was by this stage I was about 27 so I wasn't like a you know a new kid on the block by any means I had a bit of life experience and maturity behind me so as a person I felt very experienced but as an operator I still felt very inexperienced I was still quite fresh off my course and I knew that I did need to do some more flying either in the simulators or outfield to make sure that I was proficient. But I knew that we were going to get that, so I wasn't too worried about it. I can't remember exactly how long it was between my course and finding out, but I found out pretty much at the very start of 2009. And it was actually quite bizarre. I was the duty driver on that day and I had to drive the CO somewhere, so the commanding officer of the unit. And he turned and he said, oh, well, congratulations on being picked up for the next Scan Eagle trip. I was like, oh, sorry, sir. What do you What do you mean? He goes, oh, oh yeah, no, you definitely, you're one of the gunners who's been picked up for the trip, so congratulations. And I was like, oh wow, they haven't even made a formal announcement to the unit or anything. So I just kind of, I kept that one in my back pocket because I just didn't know if maybe he was, um, not that I thought he was having a joke, but I just thought I should wait for a formal announcement before I say anything to anyone. Deep down, I was, I was really chuffed and I was honoured to be selected.
1: Did you receive any backlash for being selected? I can imagine there'd be some sensitivity to that as you are, again, first female, etc.
0: So in regards to that, and it's very interesting that you asked that question, never to my face, but I always know that there was conversations going on in the background because people would talk and tell me and I'd, I'd overhear things that, oh, the only reason she's been selected is because they want the glory of having the first female in artillery on a trip. What a lot of people don't realise is that it's chosen on a basis of you know who's kind of next in line to go as in you've got people who have come off a trip so they're resting you've got people who are preparing for a trip so they're going and then you've got the next group of people who They flagged to go and start preparing for the next trip. So it's kind of like whoever's next in line goes. And I was actually next in line. And all the other people who were on my trip were people from my IET course. So we were all actually the same cohort. So although from the outside looking in, it'd be very easy to say, oh, she only got selected because she's a female. Yeah, sure. There's probably a lot of truth in that. And I'm sure that the unit probably loved having that glory and that that media and that accolade to say, yeah, we're sending the first female in artillery to Afghanistan. But in reality, I was just next in line and qualified and compliant and everything was ready to go.
1: And you were ready to go?
0: 100%, 100%.
1: Tell me about your first impressions of Afghanistan.
0: Like I said, I'd never been overseas before. That in itself was such a big deal to me and I was always a bit bummed that they don't stamp your official passports because I always wanted to say my first stamp in my passport was Afghanistan. I remember stepping off the plane, uh, the C-130, and we're all kitted up in body armor, weapons, helmets, everything. And I just stepped off and I just looked around because you're in what they call the TK bowl. So the Tarenkout bowl, essentially the base is surrounded by mountains. And I just looked around and I just, my first thought was, I'm so far away from home. Like, I cannot believe how far away from home I am. I didn't feel scared. I wasn't worried about the danger or anything like that because I just knew that the military had systems in place. We have security, you know, the, the way that they fly in and fly out is they do that tactically like everything is taken care of for you. So I wasn't sitting there on the runway going, oh, we're going to get bombed or shot or this is terrifying. I was just like, I cannot believe I'm here. So it was, it was pretty, not overwhelming in a bad way, but just a uh, wow, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually here.
1: And then what's your kind of day-to-day routine involved?
0: So for the first two weeks, we're still there with the group that we're replacing and they're basically mentoring us day-to-day. They pretty much tap out. I think we observe them for a couple of flights and then they pretty much tap out and we're in the seat. So as a eagle operator, you are. it's usually diggers who are the operators and you are the camera operator and you're also operating the aircraft as well. Whereas when we move later to Shadow, you're either one or the other. We're basically relying on our training from IETs and field and simulators to then put that into a real life setting immediately. So we're going through launching and recovering, and you have to do a set of qualifications in that two weeks. So you have to do a set amount of launches, a set amount of recoveries, a set amount of this mission, that mission, etc. And then you get signed off by the flight instructor. So I had other diggers sitting with me, who were my friends, mentoring us through this flying. And so... That was kind of the first two weeks was taken up with doing that. We're on shift work straight away. I was on 3 a.m. to 3 p.m. straight away, seven days a week. Wow. Yeah. it's you. Yeah, with, with aviation rules, you are meant to have a non-flying day every 10 days. So we did have that, but you'd still have to go to work. So it's pretty tiring from the get-go. But day-to-day, you know, it would just be get up, go into work, get a handover brief from the off-going shift, have a look at what the flights are for the day, The mission commander would assign operators to each flight so you knew exactly what you're doing. You'd read the flight brief for that, go through a, if the um, authorizing officer needed to come down and discuss anything with you, then they would. If not, you'd sit in the authorization brief, go through that. And then you'd pretty much just be sitting in the seat and flying for the rest of the day. We'd try and fly for about two hours at a time and then have a break. It just depended on how many people were on and who was available. And then, yeah, you would pretty much just fly and do whatever other tasks were needed to do for your whole 12 hour shift. From there, it was kind of up to you. What you did, I always tried to go for a run or do some PT. Some people just would go straight back to their rooms. And then, yeah, generally like in bed by 6.37 to do it all again the next day. So it's very routine, very, very, I don't want to say mundane, but just like the same every day to be, make sure you're in a routine.
1: You know what to expect. Listeners of this podcast would be very familiar with, say, the on-the-ground perspective, shall we say, whether that's a regular infantry soldier or special forces or what have you. I guess if you took an infantry mission for sake of argument, I guess I'm trying to explore the context of then what your platform is doing in context of what someone out in the field is experiencing, like how that fits into the wider mission picture.
0: I always say to people that flying UAVs is really cool because you get to be in the thick of everything that's going on on the ground, whether that was with, I think we were two RAR, whether it's what the two RAR boys are doing, the engineers, SOTG, so special forces, intelligence, whatever they're doing, you get to kind of be a part of all of that. Whereas you're, if you're just kind of sitting back in base and you're doing an admin job or a headquarters job or whatever, you hear about it, but you don't get to see it. Whereas we kind of get that best of both worlds where we get to be fully involved in what's going on. We get to contribute, have a say, help them out, uh, look after them, but we're also not on the ground, which is not like I would have loved that, but that wasn't my job. So we kind of get to be a part of it without being there on the ground. So I always loved that. When it comes to how we're involved, it depends how they need us to be employed. So I sort of alluded before where I was saying we could just be doing counter-IDF, so indirect fire which is very common in the base generally at night where they're just trying to pop bombs into the base to ruin our equipment basically, like anywhere on the base. So at nighttime, we'd do a lot of that where we'd just fly around doing surveillance, looking for potential implanting of IDF right up to patrol overwatch. So that was my favorite style of flying to do. So it would be say an infantry patrol going out. You'd have all their checkpoints that you knew that they were going to hit. You'd mark all your checkpoints on your map and you'd basically follow them. So we'd stay ahead of them And with the camera, we'd make sure we were panning ahead, panning back to them, marking where they are, then panning ahead, panning back. And you really felt like you were looking out for them. You were really, we needed to stay a certain amount ahead of them because the amount of time it takes to get a message back to them to say, hey, there's activity at this grid. Go and investigate or, you know, you know that it's there. We needed to make sure we had enough time to get that message to them on the ground. But you really felt like you were part of the patrol You knew what their mission was, you knew what they were out there for, and you could really just look after them. So we did a lot of that. Sometimes it could be as simple as there could have been an intelligence task where they needed to know how many motorbikes went past this certain piece of road for a four-hour block. So you just sit there and count motorbikes for four hours. So that's, you know, it can be exciting and then not so exciting.
1: Are there any particular incidents or patrols, for example, that are real standout memory for you that you either saw or contributed to in that manner?
0: Yeah, so there's two for me. One was with the infantry boys and another one was with SOTG. I was actually flying when Private Ben Ronaldo was killed in action and they were on a patrol, just a normal routine patrol for the day, and we were providing patrol overwatch. And there was a lot going on that day as in the town or the the spot that they were in was just very busy. And we're reporting everything back, reporting everything back. And I had literally been, because you don't watch them, you watch ahead of them. So, you know, they don't need you to watch them because they know what they're doing and they know what's going on in their vicinity. So you've got to watch ahead of them to then report back any activity that's going on. And we had seen a couple of locals running around in fields, ducking into houses, et cetera, et cetera. And we had reported all of that back. And then... He was unfortunately killed by a um, IED, and I only saw where my camera was, I only saw the side of the explosion come out and then I panned straight back onto where he was. And then we had to mark that grid so they knew that they needed to get medical extraction from that point. And then we had to then continue to look around. So whilst we were still panning back to him and that incident and what was going on with him, we still had to keep an eye out on what was going on around them to make sure that, hey, is there going to be any secondary explosions? Is there going to be an ambush? Is there going to be anything else going on around here that these guys might have their backs turned to because they're working on their mate right now. It's been a while now, so I can kind of talk about it quite nonchalant. But at the time, and as I said before, we only flew for two hour blocks. I flew eight hours straight that day because I just did not want to look after them. And although, you know, you have those thoughts go through your head where, hey, this is my fault. I could have prevented this. I could have told them it was there. I could have stopped him from standing on that. The way our technology works is we don't have the ability to see infrared into the ground and go, hey, there's an ID in the ground. We need to look for different indicators like upturned earth, you know, a discolored patch of earth on the ground, spotters sitting on roofs, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I was looking out for. And we didn't see any of that. And it just it just happened. I've recounted this incident in my head 10,000 times about what I could have done differently and how I could have done better and how I could have looked after them a lot better. But at the end of the day, unfortunately, it is what it is. And we just, things like that happen. We always just have to learn from it. And we go through our AARs, so our after action reviews, and we talk about how can we do better? How can we do better? How can we do better? What practices and what procedures do we need to implement to make sure that we're going to be looking after them a lot more? So obviously the whole base goes into comms black, so no one can call in, no one can call out. Um, We find out who it is. I find out his name is Ben Ronaldo. You know, he's only a young guy at the time. And yeah, I ended up speaking to a lot of other people who were his mates. And that's just by chance, just running into people and and getting chatting, you know, in the mess or at poppies or whatever. Not one person said, you know, oh, the UAVs didn't do anything. They were always thankful. Hey, thanks for all that you do for us. And thanks for looking out for us. So yeah, so there was that incident. And then there was another one, a couple of months down the track, we had some of our guys embedded in with SOTG and they were doing remote flying of UAVs. So we would launch them and then the technology allowed allowed us to hand the UAV over to them. They would then operate it with like a remote ground control station. And then that would allow them to fly further out than what we could from the base. So they were, and also too, it meant they could like drop down behind mountains, which we couldn't do because we'd lose comms. They were in a convoy and I had control of the aircraft and we waiting for them to get to their point. So we were doing a convoy overwatch, same as patrol overwatch, but just looking after the convoy. And one of our sergeants was in there um, and I knew what vehicle he was in, but we we're looking after the, the whole convoy. You know, it was panning back and forth, panning back and forth. And we knew at what point we were going to hand over to him, but they weren't there yet. So I literally panned forward, and I still can't believe this happened in broad daylight, to two locals with shovels digging a hole on the road. So that doesn't – I won't say it doesn't normally happen, but the general consensus is that that's a nighttime activity. They don't do that in broad daylight. So they knew that this, this convoy was coming. They knew that it was full of special forces because they have their ways, and they were like, cool, let's go and basically turn on this IED so that it will activate when they roll over it. And I remember it took me a second when I panned forward and saw this to turn around and tell the mission commander, uh, hey, bomber, as in bombardier, hey, uh, bomber, oh, my goodness, can you please look at this? Because we had big screens up in front of us where you could see the footage. And even he as a very experienced bombardier was like, oh, my God, I can't believe, obviously.
1: We've caught them. Wow.
0: Yeah, like a few more colorful words than that. But just it was so astounding that we had seen this. And so we got the message straight away to the convoy, Stop And you saw, like, you could literally see the split second they got the message. They all stopped. They then got out of their vehicles and went and took care of these guys in their way that they do. And, um, yeah, the message that came back was that the explosive device was big enough that it would have taken out three quarters of the convoy.
1: Wow. Good find. Good spot.
0: That was one of those moments where I'm like, this job can be really mundane and really boring at times, but it's moments like that where you're just like, this is exactly why I do what I do.
1: How did you find that not just, yes, it can be mundane or it can be exhilarating, I guess, just the psychology of that long deployment, those continual long hours, even with your one day offline every 10 days?
0: I always found it hard to articulate how mentally taxing it was on us because I always felt that I had nothing to complain about because I was in the main fob. You know, we had internet access, we had showers, we had, you know, everything that you need really. And there's guys who are out at the forward operating bases who are very remote and they don't necessarily have running water and they've got to rely on food deliveries and they don't have, you know, the greatest internet access or any at all. And they're out there literally living tough for a while, but I I had to really compartmentalize And remind myself that that's the job they chose to do and that's the job they signed up to do and this is the job that I signed up to do. So it's not about who's got it harder or who's in a more mentally taxing or physically demanding situation. It's just that's just your job and you went into it knowing that that's what you were going to come up against. For us, we're a small detachment, so our troop is only barely 20 people all up with all the hierarchy and maintainers and whatnot and then you halve that because you're on a shift so you're literally around the same group of people day in day out non-stop and then you go back to your room and you room with people who are in your troop as well so it's very hard to just get a moment alone to have some downtime because your downtime is taken up with calling home a bit of pt going to eat watching a show to wind down etc cetera, etc cetera. I got pretty exhausted by the halfway point and we actually had a new aviation liaison officer who is usually a a major in the aviation corps who has to be attached to us who came in and said why these people coming in on their 10th day they should be having a sleep in and having complete rest complete detachment from the entire troop doing what they want for the day and our boss kind of had no choice but to say oh okay no worries The first day I was allowed to have off, I think it was about three, three and a half months in, I slept for 17 hours straight. And I'm not a very good sleeper. And so I knew that I was just mentally exhausted because when you're on a shift like that and you are, it's not like I'm just on a shift and I'm just, you know, doing whatever. You are on. Your brain is on. You are focused. You cannot not focus you are in charge of an aircraft you know you are monitoring all the stats of the aircraft whilst also monitoring the footage that's going back you're relaying information you're getting information delivered to you like you are on like non-stop it is quite draining but at the same time you just keep going you just put one foot in front of the other and you're like well I'm deployed to Afghanistan this is just what I do and I think that a lot of people will empathize with that And have had that feeling before where they know that, yeah, although it's getting mundane or it's tiring or it's whatever, it's like, but I'm in Afghanistan, I'm on deployment, I'm getting paid to do this job and you just do it.
1: Are there any other particular impressions or memories from Afghanistan you'd like to share?
0: I think that when you're in Afghanistan, particularly in our role, you feel like you have such a strong responsibility to the people on the ground. And I always wanted to make sure that I was doing a good job at my job, not just going through the motions, doing the same thing every day. I always... Took it very, very seriously. So I would, you know, go and do a bit of work with the maintainers. I'm not mechanically minded at all, but they'd let me do some stuff there. I would go up to the launch recovery site with them and help launch aircraft and come back. So as always, trying to learn and keep my mind active in other ways. But also, it allowed me to have exposure to other parts of the base or other jobs that people were doing, and I, I really loved seeing that how the whole military comes together to make an operation happen. I made quite good friends with some cav guys, so cavalry, and they had had a, a vehicle come off a plane and they literally swung by my compound and said oh hey we're going up to the range to test some weapons do you want to come and I was just coming off shift and I was like sure so next minute I'm like up at the range shooting weapons from a armored vehicle which I would never have had the exposure to do any other time so you do get like cool opportunities to be exposed to all sorts of different roles in the military which I was always forever grateful for because it always helped me understand how every facet of the military comes together and how the importance of every job makes a military flow and in the, the role the that i do now in my civilian work that really allows me to have that that empathy afghanistan is a fascinating place i had always said pre covid and maybe pre-children that i would have loved to have gone there as a traveler it's such a beautiful place like the landscape of it the culture is so bizarre and learning to work within that culture too is is very interesting and something that particularly as a female on base like you had to really not watch your back all the time, but you just had to be very cognizant of what was going on around you. I have a, the utmost respect for every single role in the military, in particular engineers. You know, you saw some of the work that they did and it, they're just incredibly meticulous, brave people. So yeah, Afghanistan really opened my eyes as a person, like as Carly Box the person, but also as a soldier to really appreciate what goes on in the wider military.
1: You've described sort of the incredible tempo mentally you are operating at almost non-stop. I can see how you acquired over a thousand hours on the platform, just the amount you're operating at. When you come home, how do you adjust to a very safe country, a much slower pace of life?
0: Back then there wasn't so much of a focus on transition home. It was just like, oh, everyone goes home. Cool. I came home and went straight on Christmas leave. So it wasn't even like, oh, we need you to come into the unit and do half days or anything. It was just like, cool, everyone go and leave. See you next year. And then as soon as I came back that following year, I got promoted to Lance Bombardier straight away. So it was like, you know, straight straight into it. Like I wasn't one of those people who was super hyper hyper vigilant watching my back, can't walk around a shopping center, etc. That hadn't settled in for me yet. That was more after my second trip. But I definitely found that the art of doing nothing was very foreign. And, you know, I had a partner at the time who was also in the military and, uh, you know, he'd be like, oh, we'll go do this, we'll go there we'll get Christmas shopping. And, blah. and I was just like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go do this, go here, go there, blah, 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 blah because I was like so used to just being so busy. But, yeah, the art of doing nothing was very hard to get used to.
1: And then tell me about, I guess, your next few years, how you go through the ranks yourself, what you're doing in your day-to-day, because there's a few year gap between that deployment and your next one.
0: Yeah. So I didn't deploy again until 2013. And in between that, so as I said, I got promoted to Lance Bombadier without any qualifications, which is pretty common for Lance Bombadier. But then pretty much that next couple of months later, I was then on my junior leadership course, which I did quite well at, and I really enjoyed it. And then later on that year, I did my sub four, which is basically your trade qualification to be the higher rank. Um, so I spent the year as a Lance Bombardier, and I guess we were just doing things like courses, field, normal day-to-day training in base taskings etc as well as learning to be a leader you know having troops of my own and because I had such relevant and recent experience in flying too that I was in the simulators a lot imparting that knowledge uh, onto to other operators whether they were preparing to go to Afghanistan or not it was still you know hey we've got people that don't have operational experience now so that was highly valued which I really loved I then got promoted to Bombardier October of that year so the following year, so at that point in time, they had started to make a shift on the platform. So they were going from Eagle to Shadow and it was very widely known that the Shadow course was going to be held in America with the U.S. Army basically doing their version of an IET course. And I didn't really think too much of it. I just thought, oh, I'm just back from one operation, you know, that probably won't send me. Um, So this is 2010, and then come 2011, they're starting to flag people to go in groups of four or five every month to start a new course. And I just knew that it was inevitable that my name was going to come up because I would just be next in line. So I headed off to America in June of 2011 and spent five to six months over there. We lived in a hotel in Sierra Vista, which is um, in Arizona, very, very close to the Mexican border. Yeah, we'd basically carpool out to the base, Fort Wechuca, every day. And it was a pretty good lifestyle over there. We got pretty good incidentals. And we were able to do our course, have weekends off, travel, party, do whatever we wanted to do on the weekends. But the course did involve a lot of study. So during the week, you were very much in lockdown studying, making sure that you were doing well. There was a lot of us over there at any one point in time. But in my group, there was five of us, I think. Um, So, you know, you'd study together and, you know, look after each other in that regard. Basically, the remainder of 2011 in America. And then they were starting to, while I was in America, stood up shadow group one. So the very first group to go over on the shadow platform. So that was everyone who had been qualified before me, basically, was shadow group one. And off they went. I was flagged to go with shadow group two, which was due to go in 2012, but actually asked if I could be pushed back just for personal reasons and go on shadow group three. Basically, between doing the course and heading off on deployment, it was just a lot of simulator work, a lot of field time, doing other courses, you know, just making sure that everyone was as qualified and prepared as they could be prior to stepping foot in Afghanistan again. And this time, because of my rank, I was going as a mission commander and not an operator.
1: Before you actually make it over to Afghanistan over the past few years, you know, you've know you been the first female in a combat corps. Are you starting to see um, more females come into artillery, say, and uh, switch in the ratios of gender?
0: Yeah, definitely. So two female officers who came at the same time as me, basically, and I actually w- was deployed with one of them um, who we ended up being roommates and we're still really good friends. She's now a major, but yeah, so after that, so the next cohort that came through for the next lot of IET courses had females on it. And so I guess I naturally became a bit of a mentor to them, not because I was forcing myself on on them, but because that's what the unit wanted me to do. Some of them were more than happy to have me mentor them and others were, you know, a bit like, just leave us alone. Just let us find our own way, which I can appreciate. So it wasn't like we were this big girl gang posse that were like, yeah, we're the artillery chicks. It was kind of, everyone was just finding their own feet and doing their own thing and all very different personalities. I mean, some of the girls that came through were a bit more princessy and others that came through were a bit more defiant in wanting to rebel against dress standards and stuff like that. And, but that was their thing and that was their path to navigate. And I always try tried to do my best to mentor and make sure I was setting people on a good path. But at the end of the day, we're all adults and and everyone kind of just needs to find their own path. But yes, there's definitely a lot more females coming through. And then by the time I got to my second trip, quite a lot of us actually, about eight of us on my trip. So I went from being the only one to there was, yeah, a lot of us. So nowadays it's very normal to just have females in that job. It's not even, oh, there's there's a girl on our course. It's just cool. There's people on our course.
1: At this point, 2013, just before you head over, how did you look back on your first deployment to Afghanistan overall with pride or were you having some like mixed feelings coming on this trip? How was it sitting with you at that time when you've had a few years to sort of process all the highs and lows of that deployment?
0: This next trip in 2013, I knew was going to be very, very different because the climate and the operational tempo and the operational purpose in Afghanistan had changed quite significantly. They were starting to extract from Afghanistan as well. So a lot of the jobs we were doing were about security and extracting people from the forward operating bases. Whereas before it was, it was more like that patrol overwatch and being, very involved in different missions and whatnot so i knew that it was going to be very different the base was totally different the setup was different we were in different uniforms my first deployment we were in desert cams the next one we were just in in normal Oz cam and i really looked back at my 2009 trip as like i was really grateful that i had had the opportunity to go When the war was the war, I guess. We were in the thick of it. It wasn't like it was loose and everyone was just running around doing whatever they wanted. It wasn't so much about the disciplinary system and dress standards and blah, 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 which it definitely was about in 2013. There was a lot more of that going on. So it was just a bit more of a relaxed environment in 2009 and we were just able to just go and do our jobs and do them well. Whereas I think by the 2013 deployment, because it was sort of the last real deployment, there are a lot of people who were just wanting to get a trip or, you know, people who are trying to get awards and accolades and whatnot. And I, I'm just the type of person that is very much about just going to do our jobs and do them well. Like we're all soldiers. Let's just go and do our jobs. So I guess I was a little bit worried in going forward as to what we were actually walking into, given that I'd had that experience in 2009 where it was just a bit more relaxed and very different.
1: Well, when you land there, how is it different? Obviously, both as a mission commander, what that role entails for you in your day-to-day as well as you've described what you anticipate as the cultural change and then does that eventuate for you?
0: Yes, the cultural change does eventuate. It's very different. The base looks totally different. Like there's double story accommodation buildings. There was never any of that there and it's just bigger and the infrastructure is more dense because I just had more people come and go. I still had that same feeling when I stepped off the plane and, you know, that boot in the sand and you kind of look around and it was just like, oh, I really made sure I took that moment in again and looked around the TK bowl and the mountains I was just like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool to be back here. I'm, you know, not everyone gets to have a second chance to go back on another deployment. So that's, that's pretty cool. Moving forward into my role as a mission commander, I now have gone from a position where I'm a digger and I'm just doing my digger job, you know, emptying the bins and filling up the Bruin and doing all that sort of stuff as well as my job as an operator to I'm now a mission commander, which means I'm essentially a section commander. So I have soldiers under my command. I have superiors I have to report to. I I'm in a very different position when it comes to the hierarchy as well as the job that I'm doing. So again, we met with the outgoing group, spent two weeks with them doing handover. And the other bombardier that I was doing handover with was a very, very good friend of mine. We'd been friends pretty much since my first day. So we actually had a really fun time for that two weeks doing the handover. It was a lot to absorb because not only are you doing mission preparation, mission commanding, flight authorization you are managing your flyers as well. So you're putting bums on seats, you're managing crew management. So their fatigue, et cetera, et cetera. You're also doing soldier management. So there's still like the, Oh, Hey, this has gone on with my missus at home. And Oh, my wife just had a baby. And you know, like you're still going through all that as well. So there's definitely a lot more involved this time, but I had a really good troop and really good soldiers.
1: Are there any other highlights from that trip you want to share in particular?
0: To be honest, that trip was nowhere near as exciting as the first one. And it's not because of the people or anything like that. It's just the missions. The missions that we did on the first trip were just so, we were so involved and we were so well that war
1: and, had fizzled out a bit as well. Yeah, by definitely, point.
0: definitely. And so it was very much a lot of just security and Overwatch, and hey, we're moving mm-hmm. this equipment from this this base to this base. You know, just it wasn't as exciting, and I I won't I won't deny that. But it was still the same: twelve hours on, twelve hours off, doing all that same routine stuff um, same level of fatigue etc but as far as highlights go I guess being able to be in command of soldiers and and having the responsibility to manage all those missions and manage airspace and manage aircraft and manage operators I really enjoyed that side of things and I think that really helped me out moving forward in my career and then in doing what I do now with that management side of things but yeah the missions were definitely nowhere near as exciting.
1: But you alluded to earlier a bit of a different transition home this time compared to your first return
0: yeah so unfortunately on this trip I'd gone through a separation had a marriage separation whilst I was over there so I didn't really know what I was coming home to to be honest instead of coming home to a a home you know I just want to sleep in my own bed all that didn't exist anymore and that's fine that was my own choice I ended up staying with a friend and knew that I was posting to Paka as well. So I booked myself a month in Thailand and I was like, I'm not hanging around Brisbane for Christmas this time. I'm just going to go. I just went and stayed in Thailand for a month and, just traveled and ate and swam and did whatever I wanted just because I knew that the art of doing nothing again was going to be a challenge for me. And so I was like, well, if I'm going to do nothing, I may as well do it in a place that's relaxing and I can have massages and cocktails and just, just chill out a bit. And I'm so glad I did that. I really am. Um, when I got home, I then basically packed up what I had and drove from Brisbane to Victoria and posted to Puckapunyal from there instead of going back to work in the same unit it was a case of oh i'm actually going to work in a new unit in a new state this time actually they made us come to work for two weeks and they wanted to really keep an eye on everybody Um, so they just had different tactics this time so i think we're doing half days mostly just pt general admin for me it was all my posting admin like i said i wasn't necessarily like that hyper vigilant couldn't go to the shops etc. But I didn't like being in crowds or anything like that. So I definitely just kept to myself a lot more. And because I was also going through this new phase in in life of, hey, you know, I'm separated now. And, and what does that all mean for me? I was, just, I was just really focused on looking after myself.
1: Well, earlier you were engineered to be a mentor for uh, other females coming through the artillery corps. And now you find yourself in a more formal version of that role for males and females, as an instructor at the School of Artillery in Pakapanyul. How was that experience?
0: Yeah, I actually asked for that posting because I knew coming off the back of my trip that I was just going to be ready to leave the unit and take a break and do something different. So prior to going on my trip to Afghanistan, I'd done my sub four for sergeant. And then when I got back, so I posted to the school and I did my sub one for sergeant, pretty much straight off the back of that, the next day I got promoted to sergeant. I was posted down there as a bombardier but in a sergeant's role and so I think that they decided that even though there were some people who were ahead of me who were due for sergeant promotion that I was there anyway so you know we're going to put you into that role. I really lapped it up and I you know got into going to the mess and I never thought I would be that type of person but I was You know, I would go to the mess for happy hour and was really into making sure I was interacting with other senior NCOs and whatnot. And I just wanted to learn how to be a really good senior NCO because I was thrust into managing courses and running courses and instructing courses. And I knew that the responsibility of the next generation of UAV operators was on me as well as, you know, all the other people that were posted there. But I had the most recent operational experience. I spent a lot of time in the sims, making sure that I was passing that knowledge on, really looking after the next generation that were coming through and I, I really enjoyed that side of it because I knew that I had a lot of knowledge and experience that I could impart onto those people. I only stayed for a year and then I decided to get out, but I just tried to make sure that in that year that I really passed on whatever I could and made the most of, of that time and, and what I had to offer.
1: Tell me then, Carly, about your journey out of the army. How does that happen from Puckapunyal to when you finally discharge?
0: I would describe myself as someone who was very green, so just lived and breathed the Army, loved it, thought I'd be in forever. I wanted to be the first female RSM of the Army. I wanted to go all the way to the top. I just couldn't see myself doing anything else. I just loved it. I think my trip in 2013 really fatigued my love for Army. I definitely just, I got back, I did my sergeant course, I was instructing at the school, and I just Really felt like I was existing. I was just coming to work, going home, coming to work, going home. Whereas prior to that, I just would live and breathe it. I just loved it. I'd get to work early. You know, I wouldn't leave until I, it wasn't like I was staying there for all hours, but I was just like, oh, I just leave when the work's done, not right on four o'clock, which is what I had really made that shift. And I just knew that I either maybe needed to take some leave without pay and have a break, maybe look at a different job, like as in within the army, or get out. And I had a new partner by this stage who is my partner now, Michael. He had a few things going on in his career. He was still posted up to 20 Regiment and he was going through a few transitional things himself with where he wanted to go with his career. And I think we'd only been together about six months. So it was middle of the year. We had a trip booked for the end of the year. We're going to go to Scandinavia. And he rang me one day and said, hey, I think when we go to Scandinavia, maybe we just don't come back. And I just was like, what are you even on about? Because he'd been in the army for 13 years at this point and he said that he's done he said he's done everything he's wanted to do he feels like he's just existing let's sell all our stuff and just go travel and I just straight away thought you're crazy but in the same sentence I just knew that I had to make a change and I just, I wasn't loving it as much as I could. And I'd always been very passionate about giving a hundred percent effective service and you sign on the dotted line and you would give a hundred percent effective service. And the second you can't or won't or don't want to do that, your time's up. And a lot of people stay in beyond that and you see it in people and they, they're angry and they hate it and they're disgruntled. And I never wanted to be like that. I always wanted to leave on good terms and leave on my terms. And I just sort of thought to myself, maybe this is it. Maybe this is what I'm going to do. Within two minutes, I had said, all right, let's do it. He goes, cool, I'm putting my discharge in tomorrow, so you should do the same thing too because just the way that the gossip in the digger net works, if he's put his discharge in, People will be asking what I'm doing because they knew we were together. So we orchestrated it so that we were going to walk in at the same time and, and put our discharge in with our hierarchy.
1: And beat the digger net.
0: Yeah, and then we did. And, and literally as soon as I went sat back at my desk, one of the other sergeants was like, oh, I just heard a rumour that, uh, you know, Michael's just put his discharge in. And I'm like, yeah, that's literally just where I've been too. So the digger net had started up already. So yeah, that's what we did. So we had given six months notice.
1: And then you travel and obviously you do come back from Scandinavia.
0: Yeah, so what we did... We spent the next six months basically selling whatever we could everything we owned clothes appliances cars everything just to you know put our savings Together, left the school, moved up to Brisbane for those last few weeks before we left. And yeah, we basically had a one-way ticket to Iceland.
1: That's not cheap there either.
0: No, it's it's definitely not. Our plan was to travel indefinitely. We were going to volunteer along the way where we could do what's called a workaway. So you volunteer, you work, but you get paid in food and board, not necessarily money. So you're not making money, but you're not spending it. So we ended up doing a lot of that along the way. And that was our transition out of the military. And it was when we look back. I'm so glad we did it that way and didn't just go into another corporate job or something, but it definitely came with its challenges in that all of a sudden we didn't have purpose and, you know, all these things we didn't have routine and we didn't have all these things that we were used to and we are trying to de-army ourselves thinking that we just couldn't be, you know, I say in in inverted commas anymore. And it took us a while to realize that we're still allowed to have some of those values and some of those things that are important to us. We just kind of had to figure out what we were gonna take with us into our new lives. But we ended up traveling for about 16 months. We went through, yeah, Scandinavia. Um, We ended up in France for a little bit. We did a lot of time in Africa, about eight, nine months in Africa. We had to come home for a little bit just to deal with some home stuff. And then we went back through Southeast Asia, and back up to scandinavia spent a lot of time up in norway and then came home through the caribbean and then it was when we we're in norway that we were starting to talk about hey what are we going to do when we get back and i was like i don't know i'll just get a job somewhere i don't i don't know i thought we'd just do this for a bit longer but we knew we wanted to go home and michael had the idea that he wanted to possibly start a business and that's kind of where things eventuated from there
1: yeah, so, How does the barracks gym come into being? I mean, say in Afghanistan, you were always on top of your own PT. And I imagine Michael was also similarly minded. So what's the inspiration behind opening a gym? But it's also, I should clarify up front, not just any gym your focus is quite specific
0: yeah I've always been very very passionate about my fitness and and so had he he had tried for special forces selection twice that's his story to tell though I I won't go into that he didn't get in for various reasons and then that was kind of his decision to be like okay well if I'm not going to do that then I'm going to get out and go and travel so that was kind of that even when we traveled we still found ways to do PT Um, we've got some pretty crazy spots in the world where we've been trying to do some exercise and whatnot so it's just something that's Always been really important to us. When we had to come home in the middle of our travels, Michael actually did his cert three and four in fitness in that time because he decided I needed to do something. So to fill the time. And then when we went back traveling, and then yeah, we're actually sitting in Alta, which is very north in Norway. And he said, Oh, I think maybe I want to start a business. I think I want to start a gym. And I was. Just like, okay, sure, whatever, whatever you want to do, like, I'll support you. And then, so he started to look at franchise gyms, you know, your F45, Snap, that sort of thing. And the idea of it sounds cool, but you're very limited in what you can do because you have to do, you have to do it their way. And he just decided, bugger this, I'm going to open my own gym because I've got all these ideas and things I want to do my own way. And I was like, okay, cool, let's go. So he actually wrote out his very first business plan using SMEAC orders format, which for anyone listening who is, of military background will just laugh but it works situation mission execution admin and log and comms so basically when orders are being delivered to troops the platoon commander or whoever's delivering the orders will deliver orders in that format and everybody knows that that's how they're receiving the orders a normal business plan would probably come from some google template that was super professional or whatever. But for us, there were systems in the military that and values that we just knew worked in civilian world. So we still, even to this day, five years in, use that same format when we're implementing other projects. So he did that. And originally the plan was that he wanted to open a gym that catered to veterans and general population. So it was a military-style gym and it was a you know a safe place for veterans and obviously you have all your bigger organizations that are looking after veterans but we sort of wanted this to be a bit of a hub where people could just come hang out train release controlled aggression have a purpose etc etc so when we eventually got home You know, it was, hey, we're going to look for a facility and and all that kind of stuff that comes with a business. We had no idea. We had no business experience at all whatsoever and we were just winging it as we went. We went through a couple of different names and ended up settling on the barracks gym because we knew that barracks was a familiar word associated with military and we just liked it. We decided on a facility, decked it all out, Opened up and, you know, just kind of sat there eagerly waiting for people to walk through the door every day. You know, we had a few members here and there and we're trying to connect with veteran organizations and whatnot. And we're finding that that was we're meeting a lot of dead ends because veteran organizations are already established and they have, you know, a gym or something that they work with. And they didn't want to add anyone else in, which is fair enough. And so it was probably about two or three months in, we realized that no one was looking after people at the other end. So applicants And we found a bit of an in just through some Facebook forums and whatnot. And we decided that we were going to focus on applicants and not veterans and still some general population. And so we literally decided in that same week, let's run some sessions for applicants. Don't really know how this is going to go, but we put it out in some of these Facebook forums. And on the first night, we had four people turn up and we sat there eagerly staring at the door, wondering if anyone was going to turn up and four people turned up. And four people turned up to the next session. And then 10 people turned up to the third session. And that was five years ago. And it's just continued to grow from there.
1: That's awesome. So you're running the gym at Full Tilt for army applicants, police applicants. It's you and Michael as a great business partnership team, as well as parenting. I know you've got uh, your second child on the way as we speak.
0: Yeah. So we basically have run the place ourselves. We've had a few staff on and off over the years, but now we've got a solid team. So we've got a team of eight it's literally just gone from strength to strength. We've put through over a thousand applicants across all three services and then last year introduced police applicants into that as well. You know, our mission is to improve the physical capability of future soldiers, sailors, aircrew and and police. and so and that's what we do. It's not just a gym where you come in and you know jump around and do some bits and pieces. it's it's a performance center. so we want people to come in and it doesn't matter what level of fitness they're at. We will fix all their deficiencies and then help them improve. So they're actually going into basic training or the academy, fit, strong, physically, mentally hopefully preventing injuries and ready for anything that's going to be thrown at them. So yeah, we've run, run it as the two of us for quite a while, had some staff on and off, big team now. Yes, we have a, a three and a half year old daughter and you know that parenting work juggle is, is interesting. And yeah, we've got a second on the way.
1: And you supplement the mentorship and lessons from the gym and the physical preparation with the Becoming Badass podcast.
0: Yeah, that's right. So a couple of years ago, I um, decided that We had a bit of a deficiency in how we were delivering information and how we were getting across success stories to people. And I was actually in New Zealand with my daughter at the time. She was one and we were just driving around. She was sleeping in the car a lot. I was listening to a lot of podcasts and I just had this moment and I thought, oh, I could do this. And I'm pretty sure I listened to a couple of Life on the Line episodes as well. And I was like, oh, I could do this. Like, I'm, you know, I'm all right at talking. And, you know, we've we've got a gym full of applicants I can interview. And so I just, yeah, got home and Googled how to start a podcast and the rest is history. So, yeah, we've, we've been doing that for a couple of years. And I really enjoy that side of things. It's really nice to actually talk to people and get their stories out there and give other applicants something to resonate with as well so that they think that, oh, it's not just me that's experiencing that difficulty or whatever.
1: Well, Carly, I guess looking back, obviously you got a husband out of the military and you've got some very specific skill sets and systems, things like applying SMEAC to a business proposal. You've got all these little takeaways that you've taken from your time in the army. How do you look back? And I guess what's the biggest sort of takeaway or reflection you have on your time in the military, what it did for you as a person?
0: I think that the military has given me a very, very strong work ethic. i definitely won't back down from anything. And if there's something that I don't know how to do like a podcast or like running a business or anything else, I'll figure it out. You'll get in and you'll just figure it out. So that ability to just learn, adapt, overcome, and then work really hard for something is definitely something I've taken from the military. A love for fitness. And a love for, you know, implementing that into your routine. But I think purpose is one of the biggest things that I've taken away is that especially being a civilian now, a lot of people get out and, you know, they might do a job they don't like or some people don't work or whatever their situation is. And I've just realized how important purpose is, which is why I've done, you know, we've got the business, the podcast, I've run events, we've got children, we do all these things. It's like I just love having that purpose. I have such a sense of pride in in having served my country as a soldier and then on operations as well. And, you know, Anzac Day is coming up this week and there's nothing that I love more than putting those medals on, especially now in front of my daughter and hopefully being a role model to to others to say that, hey, you know, like if you want something bad enough, then you go out and get it and you do really well at it. And having that sense of pride and really having done something for my country is really special.
1: Or well, you've been very driven and very focused on purpose throughout your military career and you are applying that in all aspects in life after. So I'm sure you'll continue to be a wonderful role model for many, Carly. Thank you so much for coming on Life on the Line.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: You can look up Carly's podcast, Becoming Badass, online and follow the Barracks Gym on social media. You can find us online too at Life on the Line podcast on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at LOTLpod on Twitter, and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. We have well over 100 inspiring stories of Australian men and women on this podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation with Carly, you might also enjoy my chat with the first female to attempt Australian SAS selection, number 103, Monica Georgieva.
0: Well, the directing staff approached me and he said, candidate three, do you know where you are? And I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, You've walked so far north that you're actually outside of the exercise boundary and you haven't hit a checkpoint. So none of that is going to count towards your overall nav.
1: Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thank you for listening and lest we forget.